0: we'll be continuing in our series in James, Born Again Behavior. We have been focusing on how to respond to trials. Last Sunday, we learned that in order to remain steadfast during trials, we need wisdom from God. And if we will ask Him for it, if we will come to Him in prayer and ask Him for it, He will give it to us, provided that we have faith, Provided that we do not doubt, which means to not entertain other options, to come to God solely and to depend on Him for that wisdom, not to entertain other ideas. If we do that, He will graciously and mercifully give it to His people. Uh, Several weeks ago, we learned that the dispersed messianic community that James actually wrote to in this letter was comprised of really two groups of Christians, poor and rich, And didn't seem to be much of a middle class there, I suppose, but that's who it was comprised of, poor believers and rich believers. Uh, In the next section, James provides them with important wisdom that can help them avoid the faith-diminishing pitfalls that are associated with wealth. Now, we don't typically think... Of poverty and wealth as types of trials, but they are trials in and of themselves. To be poor is a type of trial. To be wealthy is a type of trial. Poverty is a trial that is fraught with various temptations that can lead the believer away from Christ. The poor believer is is tempted to fixate on his or her financial situation. They're always concerned about not having enough money and always fixated on being poor. We're always fixated and even obsessing over getting out of that poverty. Always trying to find ways out of it. They're prone to covetousness, to wanting what others have. They're prone to theft and stealing. They are prone to complaining, right? Incessant complaining all the time about their financial situation. And they're even tempted to despair because of their financial situation. Those are some ways that the poor believer is tempted in the midst of that trial of poverty. Wealth also is a trial and it is fraught with various temptations that can also lead the believer away from Christ. Uh, The wealthy believer is tempted to trust in his or her riches. That's a huge one. Uh, The wealthy Christian is is tempted to always be comparing him or herself to others, especially other wealthy people. Uh, They are very tempted to show favoritism to other wealthy people, and we see that in this text later on in this letter. Uh, They are tempted to lust after more and more money and more and more possessions. They are tempted to become a miser, someone who is not generous and just hoards the wealth and possessions and keeps them uh, to themselves. And so, uh, both of those things, poverty and wealth, can be a type of trial, and they are fraught with various temptations. Now, the poor believers and rich believers in this community were being hammered by these sorts of temptations, and sadly, many of them were giving in to these temptations. Uh, James knew this. Uh, He had found out somehow through a letter or some kind of correspondence, and he basically issued the following instructions in our text here to try to redirect the focus of the impoverished and the wealthy and to correct their ungodly behavior. If you'd be so kind, please take your Bibles and turn over to James chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 9 through 12 today. Once more, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, and I think we'll pray before we get to work. Father, we thank you for, first first and foremost, we thank you for all of the ways that we've been able to worship you here today already through song and through communion and um, through prayer and through fellowship before the service and now. We've come to this great moment where we can worship you through the preaching of your word. And, and we will worship you during this time, provided that we pay attention, listen and learn and take notes or whatever it is that you call us to do in this moment. But it can be worshipful as we hear and listen and pay attention and, 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 and take, these, take the truth and take it and apply it to our lives and live it out. And so I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word today that You help us today through the Scripture. Whether we be poor or wealthy or somewhere in the middle, which we'll talk about at the end, just help us to hear Your Word today and to not just be hearers, but to be doers. And so we, we want You to be glorified during this time. So may we bring You glory as we pay attention and learn and listen and apply. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've prayed. Let's pick up where we left off last Sunday. Uh, Would you guys look at verse 9 with me? Verse 9, very quick, simple, short verse. James continues by saying, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. James begins this kind of new section of teaching here that's all tied together, but it's kind of a new thought here, and it is tethered to what he said before. But he begins by addressing the lowly brother. Lowly is not a word we use very often, but uh, what the lowly brother here represents is the physically poor believers, the materially poor believers in this Christian community. That's who the lowly brother is, the ones that don't have much. They were physically poor, and, and they were physically poor primarily because of their faith. They had been uh, persecuted. They'd had things taken from them. If you recall the very first week, we talked about how uh, many, if not all, of these believers were driven away from their homes and community in Jerusalem during great persecution that happened previous to this. And so it was because of persecutors, and it could have been some business dealings, we don't know for sure, but I know persecutions there. This is why they were poor. They loved Jesus, they were mistreated for loving Jesus, they had possessions taken from them, and these sorts of things. And so that's kind of the cause of their poverty. And of course there probably was a handful there that were just poor without any of the persecution causing it. But for the most part, these, this was a persecuted group, They were being persecuted back in Jerusalem when they were there, and they were being persecuted in their new place of residence here. But they were not destitute. There's a difference between being poor and destitute. Destitute would mean completely without any means at all. Like they literally had nothing at all. Uh, These believers had very little, and I would say just enough to, to get by, just enough to survive. So they were poor, not completely destitute. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the word poor to depict a person who is of little significance in the world's evaluation. Uh, Even one who is, is being opposed by the world. So you have poor people here that don't have much, but they're looked down upon in their community and culture, primarily because they don't have much at all. Uh, They don't rank very high on the world's scales of of value or any of that. Um, Arkent Hughes wrote, They were economically low, and low in the eyes of the world, and low in their own eyes, since poverty can produce lowliness of the mind. And so they were low in their community because they didn't have much. They were low in each other's eyes because they didn't have much. They had a very low view of themselves uh, because of their poverty. It's a, it's a tragic situation that's here. It's a, it's a sad thing that we're looking at here. And James instructs these economically poor believers to what? Boast in their exaltation. Uh, this, uh, quite flatly, is just and plainly, is just paradoxical. How can someone who has almost nothing boast in anything? You know? So it's kind of paradoxical here, uh, which means it's kind of the opposite of the way that we would think. It's certainly the opposite of the way the world looks at it. The world does not tell us to boast in, in our exaltation if we're poor because we don't have an exaltation. They actually have an exaltation, something that they can boast in here. And it is their exaltation, in a sense, and we'll talk about this. But this is a, an interesting command. And by the way, it is an imperative, like the other imperatives in the text. It's a command to literally, he's not saying it's a good idea to boast in your exaltation. He's saying, do that. That's what you should do. But that, in my mind, right off the bat, doesn't make much sense because of what the Bible says about boasting over and over and over, right? Boasting is not, it's not a good thing in Scripture. Scripture never, it, it, it does in some instances, but for the most part, um, it, it does not speak highly of boasting at all. It tells us, in fact, repeatedly not to boast about many, many things. Uh, for instance, we are not to boast about our wisdom, our might, or our riches, okay, Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, we are not to boast about our righteousness. Why? We don't have any. Unless we're in Christ, we don't have any righteousness. And yet people today and back then are always boasting about all the good deeds they do and all the favor they have with God because of all the great things they do and all the righteousness they think they're conjuring. We're not to boast about our righteousness. Why? Because we don't have it. No one is righteous. No, not one. And yet people are endlessly boasting about their righteousness. Righteousness. We're not to boast about our righteousness. I read Romans 3, 21 through 27. It talks about the righteousness that comes through faith, not through what we're doing. We are not to boast about tomorrow. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to go make a whole bunch of money over in Vegas. The idea of boasting about tomorrow and your endeavors, your future endeavors, that idea is condemned in Scripture. Proverbs 27, verse 1. James even hammers it in verse 16 of chapter 1. We don't boast about tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds, do we? We think we do, but we don't. Sometimes God calls His people home right in the middle of the night, early in the morning. It happens. We're not to boast about tomorrow. We're not to boast about our achievements. And we talked about this a week or two ago. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he boasted about his achievements? He was turned into an animal type of lawnmower. And you're thinking, John's looking at me like, what on earth does that mean? He, was tur- he lost his mind and became like a cow who, who chewed the cud and mowed the field with its teeth. He literally did. Daniel 4.30. He comes out on his veranda and look at all these things that I have done. Next thing you know, he's out in the field chewing the cud. We're not to boast about our achievements at all. Even our spiritual achievements. If we think that we're spiritually mature or something, we're not going to boast about that. We don't boast about our theological positions. We're not to boast about any of those things. Uh, Another one, we are not to boast about our giving. Well, I, you know, you, you don't boast about what you give. That's between you and the Lord. It's not something that you want to do publicly on display, right? You don't want to do that, Matthew 6, 2. We don't boast about our giving. We can encourage someone about giving and use our our own example or experience on how God has blessed us and how we've given. But you don't want to be boasting about what you're giving or how much you're giving. Um, And we are not, and this is a big one, we are not to boast, under any circumstances, we are not to boast about men. Okay? 1 Corinthians 3.21, we don't boast about men. Well, John Calvin, uh, you know, shut up. We don't, I love John Calvin, we don't boast about men not even good football players that are on our fantasy team. Tim right now is going, I don't like you right now. You know, we, do, we just don't make it a point to boast about ourselves or to boast about other people. Boasting in that way is, Scripture says, don't do it. So those are some examples on how we're not to boast or what we're not to boast about. And yet the Bible does, however, tell us that it's okay to boast in the Lord 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. It's okay to boast in the Lord. It's okay to boast about the Lord and to tell people about how great He is and how wonderful He is, how good He is, how holy He is. That's okay. That's, the Bible says do that. Boast about the man, the Son of Man, God, You know, in, in, in Christ. Boast about that man, but don't boast about other men. Or we can boast in the cross, Galatians 6.14. We can boast about the work that Christ has done on the cross. We can boast about that. Of course, you need to handle it carefully. Well, he died for me, not for you. That's not the same thing as boasting. You know, that's that's not a good boast. We can boast in knowing God about our relationship with God. In a sense, Jeremiah 9:24. And uh, we can boast uh, in things that show our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 11:30. I think that's important. You know, instead of boasting about your achievements and the things that you're doing or the great things that you've done, boast about your weaknesses that ultimately point to Christ and his grace. That's something that's worthy of boasting about. It's okay to talk about your weaknesses, you know, preferably after the service, because then I get bogged down before I have to preach and I can't think, you know, but just, it's okay to boast about the weaknesses. It's okay. And now in verse 9, we discover something else we can boast in, and it's our exaltation, in particular if we're impoverished. What is our exaltation? Well, believers hold a highly exalted position as children of God. Okay? You understand what I've just told you? We're talking about spiritual categories here, but you are physically a child of God as well. You need to think like that. But we hold, as believers, as Christians, we have actually a highly exalted position as children of God. We hold a high position with Him and whose opinion matters. Think about that. We have been, think about this, this is, this is our exaltation, this is our value. We have been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. In a sense, we are spiritually seated with Him in the heavenly realms, and we will be seated with Him in the future when we go to Him. I mean, to be with Christ near His throne in heaven, in a spiritual sense now and in a physical sense later, and He's the highest King of kings. For us to be there with him that sounds pretty exalted for us doesn't it we have an exalted position here we have been adopted and and given spiritual blessings and an imperishable inheritance well that sounds pretty exalted right Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 14, where our spiritual blessings are listed, and and Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, 4. He talks about this incorruptible inheritance that we have that's stowed away for us, and moth nor rust, nothing can mess with it. It's there for us. I mean, if we have that waiting for us, that's an exalted inheritance for a people who have been spiritually exalted by God in Christ. We are... If we are in Christ, we are are not exalted in the eyes of the world. We're despised. But in the eyes of God, the only eyes that matter, we are highly exalted. We are exalted. We have incredible value. Our value is not reflected in what we own or in what we do. It's reflected in the blood that was shed to buy us, which is beyond beyond the wealthiest riches amen think about that you you think the blood of Christ wasn't costly you were bought with it we have an exalted position with God when James says exaltation he is really pointing to our spiritual position as children of God and and to the spiritual wealth we possess in Christ that's what he's saying here that's what he's doing here He is reminding the poor believers of who they truly are. You just think you're a a poor sap here on earth. You're not a poor sap here on earth. You have an exalted position. Boast in that. He is reminding them of who they are in Christ, they are exalted in Christ, and he is reminding them of what they truly possess in Christ, right? The blessings and the inheritance and and life in abundance, these sorts of things. He is literally instructing them to focus on these things rather than on their physical poverty, when James says boast, he is telling them, look, talk about who you are in Christ. Talk about what you have in Christ. Focus on those things and boast about those things rather than complaining about what you don't have or complaining about all of the injustices you're dealing with and all of that. There is there is no victim mentality or victimhood for Christians. We are not victims. We are victors. You understand? Can't be going out and becoming these social justice warriors. We we are exalted people. We are not victims. We are not victims if we are in Christ. We're exalted and we can that's something that we can legitimately boast about. What do we do? Go around going, neener, 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 I'm in Christ. No. But when, you, when in these moments where you realize you don't have enough to make ends meet, or whatever it is that you're experiencing, at any given moment, you lose your job or whatever, don't forget who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. And make that your boast. Well, I don't have a lot of money, but I have Christ. Amen. That's the boast. I'm actually wealthier than all of you fools. No, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Maybe in your head, but... It's amazing what we have in Christ, and I think we discount that. Who we are in him and what we have should guide all of our motivations in daily life. It's so imperative that we never lose sight of these things. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. I like MacArthur's commentary on this verse. It's, I think it's just really, really good. He says, The poor believer may be considered the scum of the earth in the eyes of the world, but in God's eyes he is exalted. He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the living water. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has been eternally received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious abode in heaven. What are we talking about here? We're talking about perspective. We need to have a biblical perspective of who we are in Christ and what we have in Him at all times, especially when you're poor, because the temptations abound. The wise believer, because we've been talking about wisdom here, and this plays into this text. The wise believer rejects the wisdom of this world, which says that our identity and value come from what we have, come from what we possess, and if we don't have much, we aren't worth much. That's the wisdom of the world. That's what the world says. The wise believer rejects that, doesn't listen to that voice. He constantly reminds himself, herself, of his true identity, a child of God, and of what he has in Christ, especially during trials. And this helps to guard him against distractions and all these different temptations. And he also understands The wise believer understands, whether they be poor or not, they understand that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's it's the the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And that if, if the wise believer finds himself craving after money, right, he will likely be led astray by it and wander from the true faith and pierce himself with many sorrows. That's a direct quote from 1 Timothy 6.10. Money isn't inherently evil. It can be used for good. But the love of money is evil. And that leads to all sorts of shenanigans and sins and temptations and these things. The wise believer understands this and is cautious When it comes to money. If the poor believers that james wrote to here if they accept the wisdom that james is unpacking for them here and it's a it has to do with re, it's the wisdom of focusing on who you truly are and what you truly have rather than on what the world says about you or how the world makes you feel if the poor believers accept this this nugget of wisdom that james offered here and, and they obey his instruction what would they do they would remain here's the connection they would remain steadfast in the faith and press on toward maturity Remember last week how we talked about how you have to have wisdom to remain steadfast? This is one of those facets of wisdom that you have to have when you're going through a trial. It's that perspective that you maintain, who you, you truly are, your true identity, and your true possessions in Christ. And yet if they rejected his wisdom here, this great phenomenal offer of wisdom. I mean, they're not even having to stop and pray to God for it here. He's given it to him in the book. If they reject the wisdom, disobeyed his, his instruction, they would continue to give in to temptation, and they would ultimately quagmire themselves. The author of Hebrews tells us to shed every encumbrance so that we can run the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1. And guess what? Focusing on our lack of wealth, our poverty, our financial situation, that is an encumbrance, a big one. We must shed it. We must refocus on who we truly are and on what we truly have in Christ. And we must, we must run the race that is set before us. That's what we're to do. So, James' first instruction was to the poor believers. They were to what? Boast in their exaltation. You don't have much, but boast about what you have in Christ. Boast about Christ. That's okay to boast about that. That's like equivalent to boasting in the cross. Same thing. That's his first instruction. Now let's move to verse 10. And he says this, and this is where it gets very challenging. He says, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away James' second instruction was to the, the rich believers in this community. He tells them to, to boast in their humiliation. What did he mean by this? What is this? It's, again, paradoxical. Here's the deal. Uh, I, this is a fact. I've known a, a few rich people, not many in my life, and I've met some rich people who are very, very godly, and they use their money to, to the glory of Christ. And yet I've met some, too, who are utterly obsessed with it, and all they do is boast about their wealth and possessions. And that was something that was playing out here in this community. There was the the exaltation of the wealth and the possessions, the boasting of that and the the lording that over people, and and the, the mistreatment of those who didn't have what they had. Rich people tend to boast in their wealth and possessions. I mean, it just, it just happens. I, I even see this to a degree from the highest you know, governmental office in the land with Trump. The guy does one thing that's slightly good. He makes sure that the entire Twitter universe knows about it. I've never seen a more insecure president. Who cares? You're supposed to do good and not tell us all about it all the time. And And, and he... I don't want to pick on him too much, just a little, but he claims to be a Christian. But of course, he's surrounded by people like Paula White, so he's not getting the right kind of counsel. This, this, what he does as a Christian is, that's not what we do. That's not what we're to do. And I would just say as a word of warning, wealthy Christians, because they're out there. Wealthy Christians have to be very careful when it comes to these things, the idea of boasting in what they have. Or just possessing it. Because just possessing wealth can be an awful temptation. It can be a trial. And I would just say boasting in, in personal wealth is it's just a sin. That's all it is. It's sinful to boast about material wealth. The material wealth that we might have. And, and like I said, the rich believers in this community were doing this. And and not only were they doing that, were they holding themselves up and exalting themselves because of their social standing and financial standing uh, and, and boasting about this. These are Christians. I don't get it. But they were doing it. Not only that, but they were also mistreating the poor believers, taking advantage of them. If you read through the book of James a couple of times, you get the idea that these people were wealthy because of the exploitation of the poor. That's an injustice. Of course, this is why many of the poor believers in that community wanted to basically pound the wealthy believers for not paying the wages they did when they mowed their fields and for dragging them into court. And you get the idea here that some of these wealthy believers not only mistreated the poor, but they got their wealth or maintained their wealth through the mistreatment of the poor. It's an injustice that was happening here. It's a bad situation. And we learned about this a few weeks ago when we talked about it in more detail When James instructs these wealthy believers to boast in their humiliation, he is telling them this. He is telling them, he is commanding them to cultivate the poverty of spirit they experienced when they first came to know Christ. You see, none of us come to know Christ in pride. It's an impossibility. When Christ first calls a man One of the first things that man experiences is deep, deep humiliation. He is humbled. She is humbled. Because they realize his glory and they realize their sin. They realize his infinitely costly sacrifice for their dreadful self. There is a a humiliation that is associated with a person when they first get saved. It happens. And, and the knowledge of that grows over time. It doesn't go away. In other words, the person, as they grow in the fear and knowledge of Christ, they become more and more humble, not the reverse. Not the reverse. I like what Calvin said. Here's Calvin for you. Wow, he was great. I just boasted about him. I'm not supposed to. He says, James tells the rich to glory in their lowliness, their smallness, to restrain those lofty motives that swell out of prosperity. That's the essence of this text, I think. He captures it well. When these these wealthy believers first became Christians, they were awestruck, like, like all of us are when we first get saved. You're awestruck by God's holiness, you're, you're horrified by your sin. I, I'm a sinner? I, I'm, I've, I've committed cosmic treason against God? And what, you're, you're humbled. When they, they were humbled by the mercy and, and forgiveness they received in Christ. That's the true process. And yet, As these wealthy Christians, right, that's how they started, as they became more and more wealthy over time, humility eventually gave way to pride, and reliance on God gave way to reliance on self. Do you see how deceitful wealth can be? Do you see how deceitful the love of wealth can be? And we, I think just naturally, we tend to think, of uh, of the rich as being, or the wealthy as being overprivileged, right? But they are actually underprivileged spiritually. Jesus said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. They are, in a sense, spiritually uh, disadvantaged because they are distracted by their wealth. Mark 10.23, poverty can produce a lowliness in spirit that keeps a person open to God, but wealth can produce a pride that keeps a person from God. The Bible teaches this so clearly. Riches can harden people against one of the primary requirements for entering the kingdom of heaven. What is it? Helpless dependence. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? It's one of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3. What is Jesus telling us here? What he's telling us here is that the kingdom of heaven does not belong to the wealthy proud. They do not enter it. They will not enter it. Think of the rich young ruler. And, and it's of their own doing, they refuse to enter it because they'd rather have the kingdom of this world and their wealth. I think they're spiritually disadvantaged. Never forget the clear teachings of James 4.6. God opposes the proud, whether they be wealthy or not. He opposes the proud but gives grace to who? Oh, the humble. The humble. And poverty has this great humbling effect on many. I like what Hughes wrote at this point. He said, it is a delusion to suppose that once we become Christians, we are to outgrow the initial salvific poverty of spirit. He's saying that initial humility that we experienced when we first got saved, it is utter foolishness to lose that. You don't start there and leave that behind, then become a prideful Christian. Prideful and Christian don't go together. He says, never. Rather, this ought to become more and more pronounced. In other words, the humility that we experience at the onset of salvation should become more and deeper and more and more pronounced, more visible in our lives. He says, we, like Paul, must honestly and progressively see ourselves as the foremost of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, lastly, a rich Christian, a wealthy Christian is to cultivate the poverty of spirit he experienced when he came to know Christ. He has to work at his lowliness, focus on it, and make it his boast. That's what James is saying here. Now it could, I mean, there's many interpretations of this text. One of the big conversations is about whether or not these rich that are being addressed here are actual brothers. And there's a great many decent theologians that say, no, they're not. And I'm like, well, then how did they get into the mix? Because this letter was written to Christians. It could also be that these wealthy believers were suffering financial losses at the hands of persecutors or because of failed business ventures or something to that degree. I mean, trials, especially financial trials, can reduce and even strip the wealthy of their money and possessions. This can happen. Fortunes are often lost faster than they are gained, amen? The wealthy believers could have been focusing on their dwindling riches, which opened them up to various temptations. If this were the case, James's instruction would have been more like an exhortation to see the positive, sanctifying side of their trial. Material wealth is transitory, meaning temporary. And it cannot provide lasting satisfaction or help, especially spiritual help. When it is removed, the the wealthy believer, when his wealth is removed, he is reminded of these things and redirected to God, who alone can truly satisfy and help us. In other words, the removal of wealth can be a mercy and a grace from God because he is removing the very thing that can destroy us. God does this for his children sometimes. So this could be the meaning here. Very could be. In other words, God works through the loss of wealth to humble us and drive us back to himself and to sanctify and to mold us into the image of his son. Because of this, believers who are wealthy should see the loss of material wealth as a grace, as a blessing, not a curse. In Jewish categories, in Jewish theology, to lose your wealth is a curse. You have sinned against God. Go read Job. And that's not the way it works. Sometimes the loss of something that we hold dearly is for our absolute good and for God's glory. The world, it gets angry, it mourns, and it dreads when material wealth is removed. But believers can boast in the humiliation it produces, and we can thank God for His protective, sanctifying grace. Amen? Even the loss of wealth can be such a great thing. Now, in the second half of verse 10, James tacks on a nature illustration that shows why it is foolish for believers to cling to material wealth. He says, like a flower of the grass, he will, referring to the rich, he will pass away. This was his way of saying, like a flower, like, like a, uh, the flower of the grass dies, you will also die. And when you die, you're not going to be able to take your wealth with you. You've seen the images on TV shows with people being buried with their Harleys and and the Ferrari and all this. I guess that's one attempt to try to take it with you. I want to find out where it is and dig it up because I'd like to have a free Ferrari. That was awkward. But people do that. They literally try to take their possessions with them. You can't ride a Harley in hell if that's where you're at. I've felt that some that ride them are from hell because they stream through my neighborhood at 100 miles an hour. You know, it's like, great temptation there for me. (laughs) You loud person. (laughs) The older I get, the more aggravated I get at all kinds of noises. (laughs) Amen? Amen? What is up with that? I used to be the guy that installed those massively loud stereos and played them all the time, and I had these big sound systems in my, you know, in my, in my cars, and I would pull up next to an old guy, and he'd be like, ah, you know, and I'd be like, buff, buff, you know, and today when that happens, I'm like, I hate it. I hate bass now. I loved bass. I hate the sound of Harleys. You know, I... I hate noises, you know, and it's just weird. We, we get older, and it's just, it's just bad. And all the things I liked, I hate now. You know, loud people walking down the street, you know, and it's like, shut up, you know. It's like, I can't even handle people walking their dog and yelling at their dog, you know. It's like, I'm trying to write a sermon, pagan with a dog, you know. It's like, you just get meaner as you get older. I need this sermon. Man, you can't take it with you. James is saying you. you you're focused on this and you're heartbroken over these losses or you're obsessed with your wealth, whatever it is. You ought to be boasting about your humiliation, the, the humility that you had at first. That, that should be your boast. That should be your focus. Their focus is to be exactly that of the impoverished believer. They're not to be focused on their wealth. They're to be focused on their true identity in Christ as well. The, the meaning really is the same here. The wealthy believer has to maintain, be sober-minded, and keep focusing on who he is in Christ and what he has in Christ because that prevails upon what he has in this world. And there's this idea of, you know, just you can't take it with you. Now, Scott McKnight, I didn't really care for his commentary too much, but he suggests that there is an eschatological warning to rich people here who refuse to repent and trust in Christ. You know, those who just keep trusting in the riches and say, I don't need Christ, I need the riches... There's an eschatological warning to that category here, which is a great number of people in our day and in this day. Well, this could be true, but I doubt it since, as I said earlier, the letter was written to believers, and since the last phrase doesn't line up with that interpretation, the verb pass away doesn't have to do with the end times and the judgment of God or any of that. Uh, It appears several times in the New Testament, and it does not in any way, in any of those appearances, denote judgment. That would be the eschatological connection with judgment, and that's where Scott McKnight goes wrong. It simply means, when you see it in Scripture, to cease to exist. Like in Matthew 24, 35, when Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away. What? Cease to exist as they are, but my words will not pass away. They will never cease to exist. So I don't think it has an eschatological component here, but I would be fair to Scripture and say that there are plenty of warnings, especially in the New Testament, against the wealthy trusting in their wealth. And and, and on Judgment Day, there will be a tremendous amount of people who never submitted to Christ and trusted in their wealth, and this will be an eschatological reality for them in a sense. That is coming. So it's there, but not in this text. And in the next line, James adds more detail to his Nature illustration to drive his main point here home. Let's move to verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is a picture of the the flowers and grasses of Israel, which flourish in February and dry up in May. James was likely pointing to what is called a Scirocco. Have you ever heard of that word, Scirocco? Did any of you ever own a Volkswagen Scirocco? I did. The wheel flew off in the middle of the 7th Street Bridge. I had no driver's license. (laughs) That's a bad situation. When I attempted to leave the vehicle there and walk away from it, I had people say, we'll help you. Those were my stupid days. I'm stupid today, but I was much stupider then. There's a car called a Volkswagen Scirocco. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Scirocco is a hot wind that forms in the desert region of Israel, and then it blows across the land, scorching the grass and flowers. Is Anyone familiar with the form of that that we have down in Southern California? called a "what Santa Santa Ana wind. That's a hot wind that formulates in the desert and blows through the valleys and stuff in Southern California. And uh, Kent Hughes, who lived down there and pastored down there for a number of years, he said that he would, he literally, when those Santa Ana winds came, he would see a a patch of healthy spring grass just get blown to, you know, just be blackened in two days. It's almost like a convection oven blowing through. That's what a Scirocco is. That's what a Santa Ana wind is. Uh, James probably had that in mind here because they were prevalent and common in Israel, probably still are, I would think. I don't know why the weather would have changed. And James was also borrowing from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, which says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, there's the idea of Shirocho. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He was citing that. There are parallels to that. It's as if James was saying this at this point. Since the the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits, just as the grass withers under the hot Israeli sun, and just as the flower falls in a shirako, why would you cling to riches? Riches are transitory. Riches are temporary. They won't last, and neither will you. So why focus on your wealth when you should be focused on your humiliation, your humility, your lowliness? Make that your focus. Make that your boast. That's what he's saying. In the last line, James points both sets of believers, poor and rich, and every believer to the prize they will receive if they remain steadfast under trials and make it to the very end. And Douglas Moo's comment is very good here. He says, keeping our eyes on the prize can help us to maintain spiritual integrity when faced with the temptations and sufferings of earthly life. Again, what are we talking about here? Perspective in the midst of trials. Having and maintaining the right focus. I am a child of God in Christ. I have his spiritual blessings. My inheritance is in him. That is the mode that we have to maintain at all times. Very challenging to do that when your circumstances are hard, but that's the focus. Now let's look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's covenantal language, by the way, there. James begins by describing the believer who remains steadfast under trials as blessed, right? Blessed is such a wonderful word in Scripture. It's um, makarios in Greek, and uh, most of the time it's translated by many as meaning happy. But I think this could be a bit misleading, especially here. Because, you know, happiness and blessing don't always go together. You can be totally blessed by God and totally unhappy at the same time. You can. Just because you're going through difficult circumstances doesn't mean you aren't blessed of God. If you are in Christ, you are ultimately blessed at all times, no matter what you're going through. So it can be a little deceptive to say that it always means happy. It doesn't always mean that. There's a, there's a deeper and broader meaning here. Uh, someone said... Um, Uh, It's very misleading because a person who is blessed may not be happy at all. (laughs) That can happen. And I believe the meaning here is is much deeper. I believe it it carries the idea of profound inner joy, a a strong sense of satisfaction, maybe a, a joy that only the Lord Jesus is able to bestow on those who, for His sake and in His power, what, faithfully and patiently endure and conquer trials. So I think the right way to interpret blessed here is one who has deep inner joy and a sense of satisfaction that's almost, it it almost doesn't make sense because you're not being satisfied through the things of the world, the wealth and the material possessions. Those things are absent, but you're being satisfied on the inside by the work of Christ, right? I think that's what it means. Have any of you experienced this? Like in the midst of a trial where you didn't have much, you still had joy. In the midst of a trial where where a family member, the life was being threatened and you were going through great difficulty, you were sad, you were very sad and you were very hopeful in a different outcome, but you still had joy. That's what we're talking about here. To, To be that is to be blessed, highly favored by God, to have that joy and that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in the midst of every crazy thing that life throws at us. Or, in fact, the crazy things that we throw at ourselves, because we are 99% of the time our own worst enemies. According to Scott McKnight, I think he gets this right. <laughs> the word trial refers to any difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ. Anything and everything that is challenging and difficult that we go through that threatens our relationship. Our faithfulness to Christ, that is a trial. Some would say, no, it's only persecution. No, it isn't. Trials come in a lot of different shapes and forms. Physical illness is a kind of trial where you will be tested. Financial reversal, which is kind of what we see in the text here, that's a kind of trial that will tempt you. You will be tested in the midst of that. The death, death of a loved one, that is a kind of trial that we go through, and uh, some of us have had to go through much more than others. But that is a kind of trial where you will be tested. Persecution, absolutely, is a kind of trial where we are tested, right? Trial is not limited to a financial situation, which we see in the text. It's a very broad term. It's all encompassing anything that threatens our faithfulness to Christ. That is a trial. That is a test. And MacArthur defines the, the person who remains steadfast under all these various trials as one who does what? Here's the big one, who never relinquishes his or her confident trust in God. That is the ultimate form of steadfastness in the midst of trial, one who keeps trusting God, one who keeps the faith. That's what it means to remain steadfast. I like that. That's good. When the blessed believer, Right? If you're a believer, you are blessed. It doesn't matter what you have in your bank. You are blessed. When the blessed believer, when that person does what? Remains steadfast through all of his or her trials, through all of the tests of life that God ordains, and when we get through all of those things while keeping the faith, right, and we finish the race, we shall receive The prize, and the prize, according to this text, is what? The crown of life. The crown of life. The term crown is borrowed from the Roman games. When an Olympian won a contest, an event, a wreath was placed on his head, symbolizing his perseverance and victory. The crown of life, however, is not a literal crown that we will receive and wear That's a misunderstanding of the text. What does it actually represent here? Eternal life. Eternal life. That is our prize. Well, I thought it was given purely by grace, and there's nothing you have to do with it. Well, yeah, it is given purely by grace, absolutely. But you must hold the course and keep believing. You must remain steadfast. And I believe God, with every true Christian, will help them do that. And I believe without His aid and help and without the Holy Spirit, none of us would do it. But it is something that we participate in, that we keep believing, and that we remain steadfast. And at the end, we get the crown. At the end of verse 12, James tells us that God has promised to give the crown of life, eternal life, to those who love him. That is covenantal language, I said earlier. And I think that absolutely loving God has an emotional component to you. How can you love somebody without emotion? It has that factor, that component here. But it's much more than this. You ask people today, and just about everyone you cross paths with will tell you they love God. Well, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus and all that. The great question is to all of us, we say we love him, but the love that we have for him must be manifested through obedience. If we love him, we will obey him. That's the dividing line today. Everyone says they love God and they're a Christian, but do they obey and show that love? Christ said, if you love me, you will obey me there's no way around it. There's an emotional component, but it's beyond that. Daniel Doriani put it this way as we begin to wrap up, to love God means principally to confess His name and to keep His commandments. It's that simple. Closing. Are you a poor believer? Every believer is poor in a spiritual sense. But are you a materially poor believer? Do you not have much in terms of physical wealth, material wealth? Is uh, life one financial struggle after another for you? Remember in the midst of your trials that you are a child of God. Remember in the midst of your trials that you have invaluable spiritual blessings in Christ. Remember that you have an invaluable, infinitely worth, incorruptible inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven. It is stored there where it is guarded and protected in heaven's Fort Knox. Don't grow weary. Don't complain. Boast in your exaltation. I have Christ. I have his blessings. I'm his child. I have an inheritance that surpasses any kind of material wealth on this earth. That's your boast. That's your boast. That's your focus. That's your boast. Are you a wealthy believer? Be careful in the midst of your trials or in life in general. Watch out for pride. Watch out for self-reliance. Watch out for self-exaltation in the wrong way. Boasting about what you have. Boy, that retirement, let me tell you. Cultivate and maintain the same humility you had when you first got saved. Never leave it. And if you suffer financial losses, see this as a grace, not as a curse, and boast in your humiliation. Maybe you're neither poor nor rich, but somewhere in the middle. James did not address this group. Maybe that group didn't exist there. It was literally just poor believers and wealthy believers. There was no middle class, or whatever you want to call it. There aren't classes in the church, but you know what I mean. In some ways, I think this is the most dangerous group to be in, and I think it's probably the majority of us here today. But I think it's a very dangerous group to be in. We don't struggle like the poor, and we don't strive like the rich. We ride the comfortable middle, which means we are prone to apathy and indifference. It's a very dangerous group to be in. And I think maybe we should probably follow both sets of instructions during trials, right? And What's the answer to us? We should boast in our exaltation when things dip. You know, boast in who you are in Christ and, and, and what you have in Christ. And boast in our humiliation when things rise to guard against the pride. Well, I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm really just a spiritual beggar. Maybe that's the answer for us. When things go low, we boast in our exaltation. When things go high, we go back to the humiliation and boast in that. But I think that, that we need to be careful, really, not to look at it like that. And, and to ultimately, we don't want to look at classes here and poor and wealthy. We don't want to miss the ultimate point of the text. There is an ultimate point of the text. As believers we must always evaluate ourselves by spiritual standards rather than material standards. That is the ultimate point of this text. Regardless of our socioeconomic status in life, Whether we be poor, rich, or in the middle, we must never lose sight of our true identity as the children of God, never lose sight of what we have in Christ, never lose the humility we experienced when we first got saved. It should be growing, and we should never lose sight of the prize. If we remain steadfast under trials, if we stand firm through every test, if we we keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, until the very end, we shall receive what God has promised to whom he loves to us, eternal life, the crown. That's our fault.